Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. With me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Intel Officer Bill Hamlet, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief. Bill, how are you? Hey, Ward. It's a great day. We, it is a great day. Uh, humidity broke a little bit here since yep, we normally we, talk about the weather at the outset of the show. We had incredible thunderstorms here yesterday. It was raining like a... I'm both. glad it rained, though, yeah, it, because my backyard it. looks like the Sahara. You know, So we've uh, been getting geared up here for our normal summer thing, which for us means plebes coming by. So uh, we've, had, uh, we've been introducing the class of 22 which makes me feel very old, 40 years beyond when I graduated from here. But we've been introducing the Class of 22 to the Independent Forum of the Sea Services, one platoon at a time during the summer, which is a real gift for us, getting them uh, smart on the basics of Beach Hall and Warden's Intent and so forth and so on. Uh, Later in the year, we will offer them their sponsored student membership once academic year gets together, an important prong of our member growth strategy and our keeping the independent forum viable and involving the right people from every corner of our rank structure. So we're really uh, always excited to have them come over here. Um, in fact, in the room with us now is one of our interns, Gabby, who was in the first class that ever did Bleep Summer, right, Gabby? And and so I think what you remember most of anything else is it was Gatorade, right? You got a nice cold Gatorade, air, air and it was air conditioning. Yep, and yeah. a tour and a tour of the library in our you know five hundred thousand uh, classic Navy naval uh, oral histories know, photos and yeah. oral histories and all the things that we have in our a library. Dizzying amount of content. Yep. Um, so speaking of Gabby, um, the second class of our internship is drawing to a close. They will graduate this Friday, um, and we're very sad to see them go. We get close in a, in a hurry to these interns. Uh, this I will suggest this program has been uh, a success, um, and uh, it's really another cornerstone of uh, us getting future naval officers involved in a meaningful way uh, whenever it makes sense. And so the internship... We have explained it on the show before, but let me just say it again, is a way to basically throw juniors and seniors into the deep end of the Naval Institute for a month at a time, make them colleagues. They get involved with your team, Bill. We take them to the Pentagon to shadow our USNI news team. They look at how book production comes together and how the USNI press does business. They attend events. They sit in on the editorial board. It's really, really uh, 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 intimate um, you know, no holds barred, inside the ropes view of the Naval Institute. And uh, so we're, they've also been creating content. So if you look at the USNI history blog and you look at the USNI blog, um, and there's a Facebook, lot of our Facebook our, page. They've been doing and a lot of stuff direct to our social yep. media exactly. uh, channels. Yep. So we're benefiting from their what we call ideation in the digital content space. And they're benefiting from... Uh, hearing the podcast and being right here at our elbow when we interview our guests and seeing uh, things like the news team in action in the Pentagon. They also got to sit down with uh, the principals at Chinfo, so as future naval officers, to hear from the headquarters of the Navy's information uh, uh, command. That's just really special stuff. So uh, we have one more class, if you will, one more block to go, uh, and then uh, academic year will start. So uh, we'll sort of circle up and summarize uh, what was done over the entire program when when the third block finishes. But 
uh, again, we're we've been ex- super excited to have them as colleagues. This infusion of energy and and uh, and a different outlook uh, has been fantastic for us. It's got our morale going. And uh, so, for those of you on Facebook Live, Gabby is working working. In fact, turn the camera around and show them who you are. <laughs> just wave hello. Well, <laughs> you couldn't see. You just saw your hand. Okay. So anyway, I don't want to put her on the spot. Well, another you mentioned the sponsored student program, and I wanted to let people know out there that uh, that program is not just for the Naval Academy midshipmen, but it also sponsors NROTC students around the country. We've got what twenty or thirty. Um, NROTC yep. program sponsored. Yep. It also sponsors all the cadets at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, yes. and it is growing. Right, and, so, and, a, and variety of schoolhouses, right. like the Basic School, Expeditionary Warfare School, Senior Enlisted Senior Academy, Enlisted Academy yep. uh, Advanced Submarine School, uh, Basic Division Officers Course. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things. <clears throat> so we're looking to do it more and more. And again, it's a way to introduce the right people at the right time to the Independent Forum, and then with the idea that they'll see the value and and then convert into regular members um, once their gift has uh, elapsed. So yep, yep. It, it's, a, it's a cool program, and we're, we're growing it. And I would highlight uh, two more things. Uh, one is the fact that uh, my team just completed the August issue of Proceedings, which is the Coast Guard Focus issue. So uh, it's a beautiful magazine. We have some incredible art and photos, a uh, beautiful picture on the cover of the Coast Guard Cutter Eagle. Uh, we also have an advertisement for the uh, new essay contest that's been sponsored by GDIT, which is the Midshipman and Cadet Essay Contest. So this is the first time ever we've run a an essay contest that is open to all midshipmen, uh, NROTC, uh, Coast Guard Academy Cadets, Naval Academy Midshipmen, Kings Point Midshipmen. Uh, so if you are in the Sea Services Officer Training Accession Pipeline, uh, you can write for this contest. Uh, top prize is five thousand uh, dollars. We leave the um, uh, the topics pretty much wide open uh, to those who want to write. The deadline for the contest is uh, September thirtieth this fall, uh, and then the um, the winners will be recognized at, at, in some big way, probably at the Naval Academy or maybe at an NROTC uh, conference or something that happens every year in wintertime at uh, at Notre Dame. We'll figure out where we're going to recognize Maybe at them. West. Maybe at West. We'll have our midshipman um, congress going on. But that's uh, that's a good thing. That's a new thing, a new, new essay contest, and it's open to mids and cadets uh, from all commissioning sources, uh, officer candidate school included. So great, great stuff. So uh, now I'd like to move to our guest for today. So this is the first time that we've... Uh, interviewed on the podcast one of our regular columnists in proceedings uh, and I when I joined the team two years ago I picked up this column it's called Oceans uh, and I slowly got to know Don Walsh uh, via you know working with him and editing and and it took me a little while to to put a couple of things this this name Don Walsh kept ringing you know bells in my head and I was like Don Walsh Don Walsh and then I uh, you know did the amazing thing of googling who he was and discovered that uh, in 1960, Don Walsh was one of the first two human beings, also known as hydronauts, to go to the very bottom of the deepest point in the ocean, the Marianas Trench, on the bathyscaphe called the Trieste. And he was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy uh, at that time. So, uh, Don, you are on the line from Oregon, where you live. Uh, and it is great to have you on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. And you have a, a, a plethora of stories that will just keep our audience riveted uh, beyond where we run out of time today. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. Sure. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I, uh, it's a real honor to uh, 
add my voice to uh, my pen in the sense of what I've contributed to uh, the Institute over the years. So, Don, I have to give credit. You, you, We were talking about this before we kicked off the show. You've coming up on 22 years where you've written this column. It's every other month in proceedings. So you're in the July issue, the May issue. You'll be in the September issue. Uh, and you... Um, it's it's a great addition to the to the monthly battle rhythm, if you will, or every other month in proceedings, because you write a column about the the environment with a small e there um, that sailors, soldiers, marines that our that our sea services operates in, right? So uh, you write about topics from you know the most recent one was what's happening with Kilauea volcano, which emanates from underwater mountain range, you know, in the mid Pacific. Uh, you write about plastic uh, contamination in the oceans. You've written about the Arctic, about the Antarctic. You've written about the Hadal Zone. I had to go to my dictionary for that one, which is the deepest layer of the ocean. Uh, and so you explain interesting things about the environment that the Sea Services operates in that most people don't think about on a daily basis. And it's a great addition to the magazine. Uh, so, so talk about where the idea for that column came up. Uh, who, you know, how did it get started 22 years ago? Sure. Uh, I have history with the Institute. My last two years in the Navy, uh, I stood for election to the, it was called Board of Control, and, but basically it's the same as, I guess, your current Board of Directors and such. And so I, uh, I, I was the first commander to uh, be elected to the board, I think, since World War II. And it may have been a chaplain, I'm not sure. But uh, I just thought, why not? I tossed my hat in the ring, and, gee, I got uh, got elected and thoroughly enjoyed my year on the board. So I stood for election again, which was my last year in the Navy before I retired. So I go back to uh, those days. That would have been the mid-'70s. And I've, I've written over the years bits and pieces. So uh, I was back there. I think that uh, I was invited maybe by Fred Schultz to give a little talk to uh, the staff at the Naval Institute, just talk about interests and communications and writing and things like that. And uh, I, I met with Fred, Fred Rainbow, and uh, I said, you know, I have this idea that the, the Naval professionals are at, at, you know, basically are mariners, professional mariners, uh, and globally Naval professionals, and that uh, the content of the magazine the journal um, uh, doesn't really reflect that in a big way. Uh, I, I understand that you have to have uh, a lot of content on strategy, tactics, international affairs, things that go bang and land airplanes and shoot torpedoes, and that's all very good. But I think there ought to be a room for sort of giving on a regular basis these professional mariners uh, information that's relevant to the practice of seagoing but doesn't fire off cannons, land airplanes, and all of that. So I said I would propose something called Oceans, and uh, he approved it. And um, so I was given one page, about 800 words, and one image six times a year. And the only time I've ever had a suggestion on what to write about, which is great for an author, you know, have complete autonomy, is uh, the first one, which was a, an obit for uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, I had known Jeek uh, and done you know a few small TV programs, none of the big stuff, uh, National Geographic or anything like that. 
But uh, we had met over the years. We first met in 62 when he first came to the U.S. to syndicate his films. Uh, and, and he did rather well because the first one got an Academy Award. I think it was World Without a Light. So I had history with Jeek and been a guest in his home in, in uh, Monte Carlo and, and uh, on the ship, the Calypso and so on. So that was an easy thing to do, but that's the only time I've ever been asked to do something. And, of course, I did it with great pleasure because uh, I thought a lot of the man uh, and what he contributed to the ocean community. And then over the years, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, saying, you know, Walsh, this is not, this is not really military stuff. You, we, it's all very nice and entertaining, but we could, we'd like to have that page back. And it never happened. So here I am on year 22, uh, six times a year, thinking up... Uh, Topics. I try and then write about things I know about or participated in. So when I wrote about going to the North Pole on a nuclear-powered icebreaker, I actually did that. And other subjects I've written about, uh, you know, crossing the Atlantic on the world's largest sailing vessel, uh, I've done that and, and so on. Not bragging because I never speak, I never use the first-person singular voice. It's always third-person, so I... I don't want to get precious about look what I've done or you know travels with my aunt Charlie. <laughs> uh, it's uh, but but it gets me closer to the subjects. I also try and write about things that that are really important for all of us, the citizens of the world, like the plastic ocean that you mentioned. I mean, this is a severe pox on the oceans. The fact that there'll be more plastic in the oceans by 2050 than the fish, and we've only done it in less than a half century. Stuff like that. So as a citizen of the world as a professional mariner these are things i try and hit on and not be preachy or greeny or anything i'm just providing the, the background what what's the problem here are the facts here are possible remedies and why it's important to you i can go through that logic tree so that's a long answer to how i got started but it it was uh, a very deliberate act and i praise fred for his uh, foresight in uh, in giving me that space, and I guess it's done all right. Um, I uh, they've kind of moderated my exuberance over the years. I used to because so far back in the journal that uh, I always thought I had to put a hook in there for the title. For example, I did one on marine bioactive substances, that is, drugs from the sea. We know that certain living organisms of the sea have very strong antiviral properties and or anti-cancer uh, properties, and uh, so the hook on that one was called "Take Two Clams and Call Me in the Morning," <laughs> and uh, but but in recent years they've they've dialed this back so it's kind of straightforward, uh, like a headline in a newspaper. But I always try to think of something clever that by the time you are thoroughly fatigued with the uh, you know, the Cold War and how to fire off this missile and so on that and so forth, that they could find something funny or, or would you know attract you to maybe read that one page. So we've, uh, Bill mentioned a few of the high points of your bio, Don, and, and you've explained um, the genesis of oceans. But let's let's go back just to orient the listeners to, to how you got to that place. So talk about your earliest influences that drew you to the study of, of the sea um, and oceans and, and your Navy career up to the point you yeah. became a hydronaut. Well, I, I was uh, raised by a single working mother. I'm not getting back to this. My, my father was a minor customs official in Central Europe and woodcutter and all that stuff, uh, the Abe Lincoln thing. But I was raised by a single working mother towards the end of the Depression. 
we lived in a kind of a communal house in Berkeley, California, with two other uh, Dorsays and their kids. And the living room view was straight out across the uh, San Francisco Bay. And I would watch all the ships come and go. In those days, we used to have a fleet week was big because the Pacific Fleet was based on the West Coast. So they would come in, all the battleships and things, and they, like the Klieg lights would be all in the sky. And it was a big deal. And as a little boy, uh, watching ships come and go, it was pretty fantastic. And then watching them go through the Golden Gate and disappear over the horizon, I wonder what's there, um, where are they going, what do they do. And I actually watched them build the Golden Gate Bridge. So that didn't have a lot of money for toys, so that was kind of my virtual uh, rector set, watching them build that bridge across the, the Golden Gate. And so I always wanted to be a sailor. That's the short. I always wanted to go to sea in some form. And um, I, uh, uh, and when I graduated from high school, I had not done very well uh, academically, so Berkeley or Stanford wouldn't take me, and we didn't have a lot of community colleges and things like There's no plan B. But I, I had enlisted in the Naval Air Reserve in 1948, and I was an air crewman in torpedo bombers, and that was pretty neat because most of our pilots were on GI Bill at the universities, and they'd flown at Coral Sea and Midway and things like that, a very non-regulation group. And I, I was used to ride, ride in the back of these Avenger torpedo bombers, and I was a plane captain and all, even before I had a driver's license. And uh, so I was keen on going to Navy Air, and uh, our education officer in the squadron said, well, you don't want to do it through the Naval Reserve because they cut back on the size of the armed forces. When they do, you're the first to go. You, you'll know how to fly, and you've maybe had two years of college, but that's it. And, um, you know, go to the Naval Academy. Then, you you know, you'll never get boosted out of that pilot seat. So I said, that works for me. Besides, you know, I didn't have a great average that would let me into Berkeley or Cal or, or Stanford, so I took the exam through the Naval Reserve, a second half appointment, I guess it was, and placed high enough to get an appointment, went to the academy. When I got out the other end of the academy, my eyes weren't good enough to fly. That was a big disappointment. So I went another direction. What year did you graduate? 54. 54. And so I, I did two years in the fleet uh, in, in, in uh, amphibious ships, because in those days you had to do two years in the line Navy, if you will, before you go into submarines or aviation. And then I applied for submarines and got into submarines. So you kind of work inside the ocean, but it wasn't oceanography. I mean, when you navigate a submarine, you just want to make sure you got enough water under the keel at your maximum diving depth. You're not going to run into something. <coughs> and it wasn't until I, I joined the Trieste program that um, I realized there was a lot more to the oceans than that. So I didn't start out as an oceanographer because in those days, uh, you, you didn't. we didn't have... Uh, uh, subjects, to, uh, majors, if you were at the academy, it was just one. Co- the only variety, the only variable you had was language. That was the only choice you got. Everybody took the same curriculum, except for for your choice of language. So, uh, I, you know, I'm sort of general engineering science, and hardly anything about the oceans, and about zero. But in submarines, you be clear, you know, be, become aware of that environment you're living and working in. And the more you know about that environment, the better warrior you are. And so I was kind of headed that way. Uh, and, and my first submarine where I qualified was uh, f- 56 to uh, 57 or 58 around there. And uh, we were in San Diego. And in, uh, in mid-'58, the Trieste, uh, Office of Naval Research had purchased the Trieste from the 
the Picards, Auguste Picard, the inventor, and Jacques Picard, his son, who were having a hard time running this thing over in Italy, uh, as just a couple of uh, Swiss people begging for support, a, a tow by a tugboat, and this and that. They, they had no money. So they were looking for a place to either lease it out or sell it. And Austin Naval Research bought it in January of 58 and arrived in San Diego mid-year. In San Diego, the Navy lab, it was the Navy Electronics Lab at the time, was only one of the 11 Navy labs that was really near deep water. So with a you know about a half-day tow, you could get to 4,000 feet of water off San Diego. So that seemed to be the best location for it. I had nothing to do with all of that. I, uh, I was working on the staff of the Submarine Flotilla 1 in, uh, in San Diego. I, I had gotten hijacked by the Commodore and the Chief of Staff to be, uh, if you will, a virtual aide to the Commodore. We had 20, I think 29 ships at that time, 27 subs and, uh, uh, and two uh, submarine tenants. It was a big, he had, as a Navy captain, had probably had more seagoing assets than a lot of the flag officers in San Diego. So they figured out that they would uh, uh, get a, uh, a, a virtual aid for the Commodore. And so when you came back, a sub came back from, uh, uh, from deployment, they would reach in and grab a, a qualified, you know, dolphin-wearing lieutenant, preferably somebody that was single, a bachelor, and drag him up to the staff on the tender. And then when the next sub came back, uh, the next one came back from deployment, you could go back to your ship, and they grab another guy. Problem is, after I'd been there for about uh, six months, it became apparent to me that that wasn't going to work, and that I was going to get stuck there, and I was never going to get back to my ship. So one of the things I did was set up briefings for the Commodore, various people in the area that wanted to come in and talk with him, everything, say, from a shoe salesman in San Diego who said he knew how to solve the Soviet submarine menace, and I talk to him for a while, so if we, you know, meet the Commodore, tell me what your advice. Well, he says, very simple, you just boil the ocean. I thought, well, that's good. He said, you're a great American. <laughs> and, uh, we'll, we'll get back to you. But one day, this guy comes into my office, physically on my on the ship, so I knew he had the ID and all that, and he was the chief scientist of the Trieste Project. It had just arrived in San Diego, and he said, you know, it's a submarine of sorts, and we'd like to brief the Commodore. And I said, fine, and I went down and saw him, and he said, good. They invite him for lunch, and you come too. You might find it interesting. So, I, I sat at the lunch, and uh, our, our chief scientist, Dr. Andy Recknitzer, marine biologist, PhD from Scripps, was working with the Navy League, uh, uh, Navy Labs, as civil service, came and he had this big tall guy with him, and that was Jacques Picard. So they had the lunch. At the end, the Commodore um, said, "Well, that's uh, all very interesting, Dr. Recknitzer. How can we be helpful?" And Andy was prime for that one. He said, well, I need a, uh, some submarine people there. The only best job description we could find in the Navy would be submarine qualified people uh, to be bathyscaphe operators. And we'd like to have a staff of about two officers and three to five enlisted to uh, operate and maintain this bathyscaphe, this revolutionary. There were only two of them in the world at that time. French Navy had one and U.S. Navy had the Trieste. And uh, we uh, we at the laboratory will decide on what programs to do, what what missions we'd undertake, but the actual operating maintaining of the Trieste should be with this Navy team. So uh, I thought, well, hell, that's that's one way to get out of this office duty on the submarine tender. 
and I, I was directed to send out a, a, a message to all the uh, subs in EastPAC. That's the ones that were not deployed, and I figured that was about 22, including shipyard and all that. And so at the end, that is the number of qualified lieutenants that would fit what we're looking for would be something in the order of 40 or 50. So out goes the radio message, silence. Nobody volunteered. No one, zero. Never again volunteer yourself. Commodore had had promised two two officers. So I went to see see the chief staff officer, and I said, you know, Captain, we're going to embarrass the Commodore. So I did my best Briar Rabbit act, and I said, at least I can volunteer. As much as I love being on this staff and moving papers around and meeting important admirals and such, uh, I, I think I, I ought to do it so we don't embarrass the Commodore. And uh, he, he uh, looked at me like I was a, a truly great American hero. And he said, well, you know, that solves like part of the problem. Can you find somebody else? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do. A guy that was in my wardrobe, a classmate of mine at the academy, Larry Shoemaker, would be an ideal uh, assistant officer in charge. I've got him by 20 numbers, so there's no worry about seniority or anything like that. And, and having anybody by, by 20 numbers was remarkable because I was so far down in my class standing. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I get orders from Bupers, and I'm ordered to the Na- uh, Navy lab in San Diego as officer in charge of the Trieste, my first command. And then I uh, arrange for Larry to join me, and that's how we start out and work uh, for three and a half years together, including the deep dive in January 60. But uh, that's that's a very long story, but it, yeah, kind of have to hook it into the beginning. So I just backed into it. I mean, I didn't get into the Trieste program because I could see the Navy's future and the deep oceans and the more we know about the ocean, blah, blah, blah. It was I just wanted to get back to sea. And while it wasn't, moving horizontally through the ocean uh it was seagoing work so that's how i got in i just you know i didn't uh, I, I got i met the navy's high standards for uh, uh deep submersible pilot by being the only one. <laughs> <laughs> hey so uh describe just for our listeners who are not familiar with the trieste and uh, yeah. uh, what a bathyscaphe is uh just quickly describe what that craft looks like it, it is located in the Navy Museum at the Navy Yard, so many people have probably seen it. Um, but it's it's a very interesting piece of machinery. This is you know fifty eight years ago, right? So yeah. uh, you know nineteen sixty. Um, describe it, and then describe if you will some of those first deep dives, and then how the decision was made to go to Challenger Deep, and how you were selected for that mission. Yeah, that, yeah, okay. Uh, but first, a revelation. In um, when I before I came to the uh, Trieste program in the Navy Lab, uh, the previous fall, which would have been fall of '58, I had been aboard my uh, my sub, uh, which was the Rasher 269, and she was a, only qualified for a 300 foot test depth. So we used to do it quite often, you know, find out what's leaking, what's you know, keep the, any problems small. Uh, and by frequently testing the entire hull. So we went to 300 feet, and everything was good, and I thought, that's great, glad to do that. Then I went over to, uh, by the end of the year, I went over to uh, the Navy lab, which is actually down the road just a mile, and by April of uh, of 59, 
I had made a dive to 4,000 feet uh, off of San Diego, and I thought, wow, you know, that's something. Uh, ten, more than 10 times deeper than I'd gone in the rasher. And that was pretty eye-popping. But what I didn't realize at the time was in, within uh, 14 months of my 300-foot dive uh, on Rasher, I'd be at 36,000 feet on the floor of the Pacific Ocean. You want to talk about a fast-track uh, program, 14 months, 300 feet to 36,000 feet. And so uh, uh, that was something pretty exciting. Anyway, what is the bathyscaph trias? Well, the word bathyscaph comes from two Greek words that uh, Professor August Picard, its inventor, um, uh, uh, made up, and it means uh, uh, bathy, uh, which is deep, and scaphos boat, deep boat. And what's the principal operation? It's just an underwater free balloon. It's the same as you you see if you took a balloon ride somewhere. Uh, you've got a big bag full of buoyant substance, um, hot air or helium or hydrogen. Suspended beneath it is a cabin for the, the humans. And you get into the serious uh, high-altitude stratospheric balloons, the cabin is pressurized and has very thick walls because the uh, outside pressure, atmospheric pressure, goes way down. And um, huge balloon to carry all that payload. Well, uh, Picard, uh, Professor Picard, was a, a balloon pilot in the Swiss Army uh, when he was a student in, at uh, Zurich Polytechnic University around 1910. So he understood the principle of ballooning, and he thought, you know, you could apply this to any fluid medium, namely the ocean. You got the same idea. You have to have a large container that provides lift, and below that container, you've got to strap your payload, which includes the people and the instruments and all of that. And that's all there is to it. The balloon on the Trieste, if you see pictures of it, it's kind of sausage-shaped because it has to be towed on the surface of the ocean to the dive site. So a, a big sphere, like we're familiar with most balloons, wouldn't work very well. It's not very towable. But the cabin underneath is a sphere, uh, which is a, a very strong shape from an engineering point of view. The uh, the walls of the Trieste uh, cabin were, uh, or sphere were well, about seven inches thick So uh, to resist the ocean depth pressure. But that's it, just two components. Now to make it dive like a submarine, you have to make it heavy so that it sinks. And so uh, you had ballast tanks on board, which were full of air. Once you got to the dive site, you vented off the air in the, in the ballast tanks, and you were, uh, then you were, at that time, you were slightly negatively buoyant, slightly heavy, and down you went. And we determined the balance of the thing because payloads varied depending on what kind of work we were doing. Uh, by actually doing sort of like a little trim dive between the docks and San Diego and seeing it when we vented off all of the air, that it just sank very slowly. So that's how it worked. Okay, now you're going down. How do you get rid of weight? Well, you can't, like a, a submarine, blow out uh, water ballast because we're going to be in, 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 in pressures, well, at, at the bottom of the Challenger Deep, the back pressure was 16,000 PSI, so... There's no air system you could use for deballasting water. So you have to drop solid weight. And so beneath the balloon on the trest were two tubs, two large containers. Each held eight tons of steel shot ballast. It looks like BBs for a BB gun, except they're made out of steel. And uh, at the bottom of these containers was an opening surrounded by an electromagnet. And when that magnet was energized with electric, electric power, then the steel shot in that throat, if you will, was magnetized and temporarily, and it couldn't fall. So it's a magnetic switch. You just cycle a little, uh, a little spring-loaded switch inside the cabin, 
and you can very precisely drop uh, ballast weight from either or both tubs. And in case of an emergency, you could drop the entire tub. They were uh, held to the bottom of the balloon, or float as we called it, by large electromagnets. So very, very simple, but very, very elegant. And so uh, it didn't take uh, Larry and myself and my team to long to learn how it worked and, you know, general principles of the thing. And uh, it was all hands-on for everybody. I mean, I spent a lot of hours in a boiler suit crawling in through the tanks and painting and doing all the, all the work that was necessary to be done. So I, I got, you know, we had a real school of the boat. But after qualifying in submarines, this wasn't a very arduous task. So from surface... Uh, oh, let me get one yeah, more ahead, thing. Sure. The Navy actually built two of these things. Uh, the first one was the one I had, and that is in the Navy Museum in Washington, D.C. Then Trieste II, Roman numeral two, is at the Naval Undersea uh, Museum in Keyport, Washington, sitting outside there. And that was the last Trieste the Navy operated. So U.S. Navy had bathyscaphs for a maximum ocean depth uh, exploring, if you will, for over a quarter century. So what, what was the mission, Don, um, and what was the tactical application? Obviously, your learnings were applied to the sub-force going forward, but, uh, you know, why, why would you go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench? Because That's it was question. there. We originally, now remember I said earlier, the Austin Naval Research purchased, it purchased the Trieste as an R&D platform to, uh, for doing ocean science, oceanography, and they actually leased the Trieste for a summer uh, in Capri, actually, in Italy. Uh, regrettably, I wasn't there at the time. But they invited uh, American scientists from the various disciplines, such as biology, geology, uh, acoustics, and so on, to sample dive the Trieste and then to make a judgment on whether or not such a platform was useful for their particular disciplines. And uh, at the end of this series, they all agreed that this would be a very useful uh, platform for doing in situ, that's the you know, Latin term for being there at the site, uh, work within the oceans. And uh, then the, 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 the purchase process went ahead with the, uh, with the Picards in January uh, 58. Uh, so it was originally brought over as an R&D asset. Uh, why did, uh, what, what did we get out of making the deepest dive? Well, basically... The whole idea was so revolutionary of putting people in something and taking them very deep in the ocean that we had to really demonstrate um, without uh, uh, too much uh, uh, reluctance, if you will, that it was capable of full ocean depth exploration. So uh, Picard and I were not oceanographers. My training, my formal training in oceanography came a few years later, um, and Picard was trained as a political economist in Switzerland, and then he learned by apprenticeship with his father. So we were two engineers. We were test pilots. Much as when, you know, Boeing builds a new airplane and they roll it out of the factory, they don't take it right over the you know, boarding gate for, uh, you know, load-up revenue passengers. It goes through a test program before it's handed over to the airline, the, the, the customer, the buyer, if you will. So the idea of making the deepest dive was not to... Uh, set records or anything like that. It was to prove out the system uh, using two test pilots who we had done uh, seven or eight months of increasingly deeper test dives out at Guam where we based uh, the Trieste. 
and uh, we're pretty sure we learned all of its foibles and features and efficiencies, but we want to ensure that it was safe and productive before it was handed over to the R&D community. And, and some people say, well, I was just, you know, stunting on the part of the Navy to set a record. Well, it's not correct because I got the word from the top man himself, Arlie Burke. Uh, when I took the, the uh, operation plan, which I had prepared, back to the Navy Department to get approval to do the Guam operation, nobody would give me an answer. You know, I went all through the chairs and O&R, right up to the Chief of Naval Research, Admiral, and then I was sent across the, the river to, you know, uh, Navy Department, the Pentagon, to uh, continue to talk to people, and the, the captains would make a decision. The, the admirals, rear admirals, were entertained, but non uh, uh, noncommittal. The vice admirals, again, and anyway, the short of that is, after a few days, I ended up in front of Arlie Burke's office, and I thought, well, he's not going to get a decision here. I mean, the, the buck stops here, or the the, the, you know, the the proposal stops here. So I went in and spoke with him, and he he was still smarting from the fact that. The Navy had proudly proclaimed that we would have the first Earth orbital satellite. I guess it was a Mariner or something. I'm not up on my history anymore. But um, and we, they PR'd the hell out of it. You had all the people at you know Cape Kennedy or Canaveral, whatever it was then, uh, lined up ready for this thing. And they kind of didn't work so good. They blow up or head for Kansas City and uh, the, you know the rockets. And so. Uh, he was felt really embarrassed by this a scientific spectacular, and it let him down. So he said, "Walsh, uh, I'm going to prove this, but uh, you know, you're not to tell anybody about it. If you come up, we'll tell people. If you don't come up, we're not going to say anything. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, we're not going to have a repeat of what happened. The Navy's not going to get embarrassed by all of this. So when people say that we did it to set a record." Uh-uh. It was it was really embargoed. The fact is that Life magazine and National Geographic got a sniff of it, and uh, they were with us at Guam because they they said, "Well, if, if we can't uh, you can't comment on this, then we're going to run a story on what we think is happening." So that would not have been good because it was a lot of bad information. So they were sealed. Of course, not hard to tell them they, they're getting a scoop to keep their mouth shut, and that's how it how it played out. And then once we had finished with our uh, our ultimate dive, if you will, and our series of test dives, then we moved over and started taking uh, oceanographic scientists uh, down. And that's how I got my first apprenticeship, first education in, in oceanography, because on every dive you were taking somebody of a different discipline. You know, this week I had a biologist, next week I'm going to have a geologist. I needed to know what he wanted to measure, what kind of gear he needed to uh, used for sampling physical or, or data or imagery. And uh, there's just two of us in the Trieste, so he's at the window, and I'm kind of coaching him because I'm like, like a script because we've got an open mic in there to make sure we get uh, all, of the, all of the chat down. So uh, I did an apprenticeship in oceanography, and that's when I began to get interested in the sea. Uh, ultimately, the Trieste went to uh, the operational Navy because... Um, the uh, submarine force uh, figured that, uh, uh, that you could do things with these deep diving probes that um, uh, that they didn't have capability to do at that time. So uh, after I left the project in '62, uh, I think uh, maybe well, there's Thresher. That was '63. Right around the end of '63 into '64, 
uh, they, they started uh, migrating to the submarine force and more or less left the R&D Navy to be uh, assets uh, of, uh, of, of the seagoing submarine Navy. The, the thing is that uh, what I think generically what they were interested in doing is recovering stuff off the ocean floor at great depths, uh, stuff that may not necessarily belong to us. And uh, so the thing went black. I had no need to know. I don't know what they did. I can guess, of course, but uh, the time I left the program, we weren't doing any classified work. But it, the, the next guy after me came along, the officer in charge of Trieste. Uh, he, bega- he began to get in towards a, a uh, black code word program. And, uh, of course, I had no reason to know, so I wasn't really dialed into it. Um, so there were two bathyscaphs Trieste. The French Navy also built two. The first one uh, was contemporary with Trieste. And then <clears throat> about uh, early to mid-60s, they built their next one and final one, which was called the Ar- Archimedes or Archimedes. And, uh, of course, they're all retired now because we figured out there are better ways to do uh, that kind of work. It's not The work's not being done. It's just being done with different platforms. So I'm sure you often get asked, Don, like I was a jet guy, so people ask me what it's like to go supersonic, and it's fairly unremarkable, right? Um, what was it like to be down at 36,000 feet beneath the surface? Well, uh, as a pilot, I, I'll give you a good simile. It was just a longer day at the office <laughs> because we we had been doing uh, progressively. We start out at you know, 300 feet in the harbor at Guam and worked our way offshore over seven months. And so uh, the drill was pretty much the same. So in, in aviation parlance, you pre-flight your airplane. That's the same thing you're going to do, whether you're going to just do bounce drill you know, around the circuit or you're flying thousands of miles across the ocean. The, the manipulations to get ready to go are exactly the same. And the same thing after the mission, when you put it away, there's certain shutdown protocols, procedures, checkoff lists you have to go through, whether you've been you know, for two hours or uh, you, know, you had to go up and plug into the tanker and all that and fly across the Atlantic. And it's the same thing with the Trias. All the manipulations are the same. What made the day long or short was depth uh, because it takes longer to go deeper so that's what I mean by a longer day at the office it sounds precious but the point is that the all the protocols in operating the thing were no different whether we're diving 200 feet or 20,000 feet and how long was that day at the office in the Trieste when you went to the bottom uh, of the Marianas yeah, Trench? Yeah, the deepest dive was nine hours and some change uh, there was round trip that was a round trip. Took us five hours and some change getting down because we want to go slowly. We had no seafloor charts, no idea what the seafloor looked like. We didn't want to crash into a submarine mountain and uh, ruin our day. So we kind of felt our way down to the bottom. And we sp- stayed on the bottom about a half hour. When we landed on the bottom, we stirred up a great cloud of uh, sediment, which uh, did not dissipate. Our earlier dives, all the dives we'd made up to, to that time, uh, you should get a cloud of mud or something like that, and after a few minutes it would drift away, and you could take your pictures and do your observations. This time it didn't. It was like somebody had painted the window uh, with white paint, and so after about twenty some odd minutes, it wasn't. There was no perceptible change in visibility, and we had to get back up to the surface because this is winter time. <clears throat> Even over in the subtropics, the days are shorter, 
and we had the we had this this uh, uh, tug uh, navy tug towed out from Guam an ATF uh, tub tug and uh, we uh, uh, it took a couple hours to disconnect the tow because the truss is very very fragile it, you know it's a flying machine so the structure is pretty light to optimize payload and so you, you had, a, had a sort of have people in the water un, uh, disconnecting the shackle which at the other end of that one inch wire was a what a 1200 ton tugboat so we want to do it just take our time and do it full sunlight so that did, dictated the length of our day so we wanted to be back up with a, at least two hours of full sunlight to hook up the tow and, and head on back home so uh, that's how we got our sort of nine-hour dive profile. We knew uh, that we should take more than nine hours, and then we would uh, uh, we would be risking uh, trying to work in the dark, which could be hazardous for people. Uh, and uh, so that's why we stayed on the bottom a very short period of time. We got no imagery. Uh, the first time any images of the Challenger Deep were ever taken were, was uh, 25 years later in the Japanese unmanned uh, vehicle, submersible Kaiko, which is a Japanese word for a trench. And it was an ROV, remotely operated vehicle. It was operated by, uh, by a surface ship through a very long umbilical. And uh, uh, they actually could park it on the seafloor. And after a while, of course, the cloud went away. We just didn't have the time to spend down there to do that. So... Um, but the mission was successful. We, we proved out the platform and certified it as being safe for uh, doing oceanographic work. So that was our goal. So, uh, yeah, it was disappointing that, uh, I, I, you know, I just I saw the seafloor there just before we landed, as did Jacques. But after we landed, it was uh, completely gone. Hey, Don, we, we are sadly out of time, and uh, I think... Our listeners, and I know Ward and I could stay and, and, and listen to your stories for a lot longer, so we're going to have to get you back on the podcast uh, for our audience. Uh, this was a great conversation with Don Walsh, who is a hydronaut, a Navy lieutenant in 1960, who picked to, uh, uh, to be the, the commanding officer of the Trieste program and uh, talking to us about taking the Trieste down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench in January 1960, uh, not far from Guam. Um, Don, sometime we'll, we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about having lunch on board the Bismarck at 15,000 feet on a Russian submersible uh, and some of the things that you've done getting to the North Pole and the South Pole. So uh, you are a man with incredible stories, uh, and you write the Oceans column for Proceedings every other month. Uh, just one of the stable of amazing authors and incredible people that we have uh, writing for Proceedings uh, month in and month out, uh, and, and now with Proceedings today, almost day in and day out. So thank you for joining us, and we look forward to your next column, and we look forward to the next time we can have you on the show. All right. Well, I've, I've got a lot of stories because uh, my career in the Navy was so atypical that uh, – you know, they just left me alone when I was, de- I was declared by Bupers to be officially stupid. <laughs> no, that's when I applied for the nuclear power program. And uh, the detailer said, well, I can send Nobel laureates over to Admiral Rickover, and he still chews me out for all these dummies. And he said, you, Walter, are officially stupid. He won't even know you exist. So the Navy <laughs> just kind of left me alone for the rest of my career, and I did interesting things, which, you know, contributed to the mission of the service. But uh, there were things that... Uh, as long as I didn't touch anything or break anything, the Navy said, well, all right, go do that. So that's great counsel for the younger 
listeners we have is if you're officially stupid, the Navy will leave you alone. You can do amazing things. You can do amazing things. Well, yeah, some of us are just late bloomers. I mean, the things you did as a teenager shouldn't be held against you when you're an adult. But that's what I say. <laughs> that's the way that program worked. That's Ward's model. That's, my model. that's what I tell my wife on a daily basis. <laughs> There you go, yeah. Well, thanks, Anyway, Don. thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it, and I'll, I'll be happy to come back again. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, that does it for Episode 36 of the podcast. We'll see you again next week. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.